Last Sunday, we came to a clear stopping point in our sermon series through the book of Acts. We completed chapter 12. We're going to take a break for a while. We're going to focus here in these first three weeks of November on the theme of stewardship. And the last Sunday in, th- in November is actually the first Sunday in Advent. So we're in transition. Now we're focusing on this, what we'll call the Thanksgiving season uh, in these first three weeks of November. The reading of Scripture, therefore, comes from the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8. You may know that 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are uh, what you might call the go-to passages for Christian stewardship. Of course, they're not the only passages, but they are seminal passages. They have some key verses, key principles, key precepts about financial stewardship. So I'll be reading this morning 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15 and making reference to some verses out of 2 Corinthians 9. But let us ask the Lord, whose Spirit breathed out this word for us and preserved it in Holy Scripture, now to breathe upon us afresh that we might be alive to hear His word and believe it and obey it. In Jesus' name, let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all grace and the God of all goodness and the God of every good and perfect gift. We pray for the gift of your Holy Spirit now upon us afresh and anew to open our minds and open our hearts that we might learn from your word, receive it with thanksgiving, believe it with joy, and apply it with faithfulness. We ask this for the glory of your name through Jesus, our Savior. Amen. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of God. It is written. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, that is, the believers in Jerusalem. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also this offering for the support of the impoverished believers in Jerusalem. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness as it is written. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And now unto him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. At our recent session retreat, it was suggested that we may need more biblical instruction about financial stewardship because we talk about it so little, so infrequently here in Covenant Presbyterian Church. And and that suggestion was made with the acknowledgement that, yes, for the last eight years or so, Covenant has experienced financial health. But the concern is that we want to continue that, and this teaching may need to go forward in into the lives of new members and new believers, and it become a part of who we are as a congregation, as a, as a Bible-based, gospel-believing, doctrinally sound, joyfully singing congregation. Also, part of that culture, part of that DNA is that we are faithful, generous, cheerful givers. Well, one comment. I think that it's, 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 it seems obvious to me that many of you are committed to the spiritual discipline of tithing and to cheerful giving above and beyond the tithe as God enables you. And, and we all benefit from that, and our ministry has increased with that, and God is glorified through that generosity. But let me make one thing clear. I know what one family unit and one family unit only gives to the church. And it's not your family unit. (laughs) I don't know what you give. So this sermon, like all sermons, is directed to all of us, including me. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit applies it appropriately and effectively to teach each of us in our own particular situation, as with every other sermon. Here are some basic, fundamental, biblical principles which ought to direct and discipline 
your financial stewardship for the glory of God. I have three major headings. Christ-centered financial stewardship is one, basic to Christian discipleship. Christ-centered financial stewardship is one, basic to Christian discipleship. Christ-centered financial stewardship is two, proportional to one's ability according to what God has entrusted to you. And Christ-centered financial stewardship is three, cheerful, in grateful response to God's gift of Jesus Christ. Basic, proportional, cheerful, BPC. That's the best I could do. Christ-centered financial stewardship is basic to Christian discipleship. It is as basic to Christian discipleship as is faithfulness in marriage, faithfulness in parenting, faithfulness in worship on the Lord's day, faithfulness in Bible study, faithfulness in prayer, service to others, and a commitment to live a personal life of loving God and loving our neighbor. Financial giving to the Lord in His church is basic. It's what we do because it's who we are. People who belong to Jesus Christ because He gave His life for us and bought us with His blood. Do you believe that you are Owned by Jesus Christ, bought with His precious blood. Of course, everything you have belongs to God because God is the Creator. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. All of creation belongs to God because He made it, and you belong to God because He made you, and therefore everything you have is a gift from God who gives you life and breath and strength every day. Now, once we get that fact, that truth, straight in our minds and embedded in our hearts, everything we have belongs to God, our Creator, then the principles of biblical financial stewardship begin to fall into place. But for us as Christians, there's more. For us, if indeed we are true Christians, if we, if we know that we have been saved by Jesus Christ, bought with His blood, it's deeper and more personal. God is not only our creator and our sustainer, which He is for everybody in the world. He is our redeemer and our savior. Christ Jesus has claimed us and all we have as His own at the cost of His own precious blood so that by His righteousness... By His grace, we might be co-heirs with Him of His eternal glory and have that inheritance, 
imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved for us in heaven. Do you know in your heart and rejoice in your heart that you belong to Jesus Christ forever? That's the starting point for truly Christ-centered stewardship. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's a proclamation of the gospel, which Paul wrote as an encouragement to the Corinthians about financial generosity in support of Christian ministry. It's a direct application. Paul was raising financial support for the impoverished church in Jerusalem, which at that time was suffering persecution and societal marginalization. But the passage gives us general principles which apply to our financial stewardship, and we'll be looking at those. But first of all, let's look at some other passages of Scripture which show us that giving offerings to the Lord is very basic to the Christian life. It's who we are. It's what we do because it's who we are. All the way back in Genesis 4, we read that Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So the bringing of an offering to God has been embedded in the divine human relationship since the very beginning. Giving an offering is basic in our relationship with God. It is an expression of worship, homage, submission, dependence, and thanksgiving, and trust. But we also see something else in this passage. Watch this. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. That's what the Scripture says. Brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. But it wasn't the first fruits or the best of what he had to offer. It was just a perfunctory offering of what he happened to have on hand. Abel, however, brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. In other words, Abel gave his offering off the top, the firstborn, off the top, priority commitment, first things first. And he gave the best portion, the fat portion, the most valuable portion to the Lord, which means he didn't hold back the best for himself. And in that sense, Abel's offering was not only a matter of priority giving, but also sacrificial giving. Cain brought what he happened to have on hand. Abel brought the first and the best he had to offer. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So right in the very beginning, the basic principle is revealed and established. We are to offer the Lord the first and the best. This is a basic principle, which is echoed in Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, which says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, notice the order of that. Honor the Lord with your first fruits. Give off the top. First priority. First things first. Then your barns will be filled and your vats will be bursting. Now that's quite different. It's in fact the direct opposite of saying, um, you know, if you've got enough in your barns and you've got enough in your barrels, then give what you think you can to the Lord. No. That doesn't honor the Lord who owns it all and gives it all in the first place. So, in practical terms, and I want this sermon to have some practical application. So, practical terms. I have known people who, when they get a paycheck, they get a paycheck, the first check they write is their tithe to the Lord to be put in the offering plate on the following Sunday. Some of you may have your paycheck automatically deposited in your bank account. Well, you can also set up an automatic transfer from your account to the church on that same date. Now, I'm not telling you to do that. Don't misunderstand. I'm not telling you to do that. But I want you, the point here is I want you to examine your pattern of giving along the lines of this basic biblical principle of first and best and consistency and faithfulness. Are you giving like Abel, first, best, and sacrificially, or are you giving like Cain, what you think you can, when you think you can, without much thought or priority commitment? Now, since I mentioned the possibility of an automatic transfer of funds from your bank account to the church for the sake of giving first to the Lord in a consistent and thoughtful way, let me make a, let me make a practical pastoral suggestion. Some of you uh, may have an automatic transfer to the church, and some of you may give annually or semi-annually by means of stock gifts or out of your IRA, and those are very effective ways of giving. Now, a lot of churches uh, are, are set up to receive donations directly from their website or even from a church app on members' phones. Well, we're not there yet, primarily because your former senior pastor is an old-fashioned stick in the mud. But I'm not your senior pastor anymore. 
and you never know. But here's my point. This is where this is going. I'm going somewhere. Here's where we're going. Psalm 96.8 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. The Bible says, bring an offering. So if, if you give by automatic transfer or stock gifts, if in the future we get set up for giving through the website and you're giving digitally, well, even then, even then, still bring an offering to put in the plate every Sunday morning, a dollar, a quarter, a dime, or a penny. The physical act of placing something in the offering plate in corporate worship is itself an act of worship. Do not neglect it. It'd be like not singing the hymn with the congregation. Don't neglect it. It's the way you put yourself in the plate every Sunday. Putting a token in the offering plate visibly and tangibly represents and embodies and expressing expresses the the offering of yourself as a living sacrifice to God. It is an important act of worship every Sunday. So if you give digitally, electronically, put something in the plate that represents you every Sunday as an act of worship. And parents, if your children are in worship, they too ought to have something to offer every Sunday, a penny, a nickel, a dime, a dollar, 10% of their weekly allowance or their chore money. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Giving is basic to the Christian life because giving is an act of worship. Giving is basic to the Christian life because Jesus Christ gave himself to us and for us. Now, number two, Christ-centered financial stewardship is proportional proportional with respect to what the Lord has entrusted to us. But how do we begin to calculate that? How do we know if we're even in a ballpark range of what we ought to be giving? That's a very good question. God has provided guidelines in His Word. Going back into Old Testament antiquity, going back to Abraham, we see the tithe, 10%, as being a standard, a baseline, a benchmark offering. And there are numerous references to the tithe, the giving of 10% in the Old Testament, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to refer to them. But the Old Testament practice of tithing, the giving of 10% of one's income to the church, became the baseline, the standard, the benchmark, the beginning point as a guideline for proportional giving as Christians. How much should I be giving to the church? Well, 10% of your your income is a good place to start. 10% of your take-home and keep income 
is a good place to start. Now, I, again, I assume that many of you learned the spiritual discipline of tithing as a child and have practiced it your whole life. And many of you probably now exceed the tithe with cheerful giving above and beyond that 10%. But, but there may be others, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, but there may be others who didn't learn to tithe as a child and have never tithed. And you may be thinking right now, I don't know who you are, well, I could never afford to tithe. Well, that's your first clue. It's your first clue because if you say, well, I could never afford to tithe, what that means is you're not giving off the top. It's not your first priority. And it means you're upside down in some way. Something's, Something's out of order. Either your entire financial house is not in good order and and maybe you need to get some professional advice about that for restructuring your your budget or your or or your priorities are out of order or you just didn't know because you'd never been taught i understand that but here's the thing if right now you're you're sitting there and you're thinking well okay i'll tithe when i can afford to The reality is, you probably never will. Because if there's not a fundamental change in priorities, you probably never will be able to afford to. Because as your income grows up, so will your standard of living, right? That's how it works. It's basic human nature. If we're upside down, we stay upside down. You see, it's not really about money. And this sermon, I I, I, want to tell you, uh, this isn't a fundraising sermon. This church doesn't need a fundraising sermon. I'd have a fundraising sermon. I I despise it from from the pulpit. This, This is about priorities, commitments, discipline. It's about what we do because of who we are, because of who Jesus is. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So the question for all of us, myself is included, is where is my treasure? Where is my heart? Because your money follows your heart. And your heart follows your money. So you can answer that question by looking at your checkbook, looking at your credit card statements, and looking at your tax returns. Again, I'm not giving you a fundraising talk. I'm addressing something that is very spiritual about you and me in our discipleship relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I I don't know your financial situation. 
I don't know the extenuating circumstances that may have put you in really hard times right now. I don't know how much legitimate or illegitimate debt you are carrying. That's another issue. Get the help you need. Or any other details. That's not really my business. And, and, and let me also say, this is an aside. I'm very sensitive. I hope you know that I'm very sensitive to the fact that it's expensive to send your children to a truly and explicitly Christian disciple-making school. And, and if the government schools were today what they were 60 years ago in terms of worldview and moral environment, you wouldn't have that added expense, and I understand that. I, I, I understand that. And, and that's the reason that the session wants to help you send your children to an explicitly Christian disciple-making school. That, that's, that's an aside. It's just a way of saying, I know, there are, I know that there are uh, hard commitments out there. But my point is, I don't want this to be burdensome. I don't want this sermon to be burdensome. Jesus Christ would not lay a heavy burden on you. He is for you, not against you. But he does call us all to take up our cross daily and follow him in a life of faithful and self-sacrificial discipleship in every area of our life, including financial. Because he does call us to have him first in our lives. And that's liberating. That's truly liberating. I want this to be empowering for you. I want it to change your life in a good way. So if you're not tithing to the church, ask yourself, hmm, well, why not? Let's look at it. Figure out what changes you need to make in your lifestyle and priorities. Begin to take proactive, concrete, strategic, incremental financial management steps toward tithing. It's not about fundraising. It's about basic Christian discipleship. It's what we do because it's who we are because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Christ-centered financial stewardship is proportional, and the tithe is one biblical measure of that proportionality, 10% of your take-home and keep income. But some will say, now look, Pastor John, tithing is not commanded in the New Testament. True. That is very true. So what principles or guidelines are we given in the New Testament? We read from 2 Corinthians 8. Listen. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Now that sounds like pretty clearly that the extremely impoverished Christians in Macedonia Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, 
who gave voluntarily beyond their means, it sounds like, you know what? Sounds like they exceeded the tithe. And the Apostle Paul holds them up as an example because their generosity exceeded his own expectations. And here's the key verse in in verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That's it. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then everything falls into place. It was their priority spiritual commitment to the Lord Jesus, the giving of themselves to the Lord first that motivated their generosity out of their extreme poverty. Another New Testament example of proportional giving, of course, is the widow in the temple who put in two copper coins amounting to a penny into the temple offering box. And Jesus said of her, Truly, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. She gave just a tiny little bit but she exceeded the tithe by a long shot. So the tithe is basic, the foundational proportion. But then as God enables us, we give proportionally above and beyond the tithe, and perhaps that's, it's at that point. Now, I want to allow for a lot of Christian liberty here, okay? But perhaps it's at that point as God has blessed some of us with more resources. It's at that point that we begin to support parachurch organizations and mission agencies and other Christian ministries over and above the tithe. We have lots of liberty of conscience in these matters. There are no hard and fast rules. But there's this principle of proportionality and I think the principle of priority giving to the local congregation with the tithe or at least the the vast lion's share of that tithe and then over and above to other Christian ministries and agencies. Now, we in covenant are as socioeconomically diverse as the first century Corinthian Christians. Some of us are giving out of our weekly or monthly paycheck. Others are giving out of accumulated wealth and others are giving out of fixed income. But none of that matters because the amounts don't matter as long as we are thinking in terms of biblical proportionality with the tithe as basic and other offerings according to our ability as God has supplied us. This is what Paul says in verse 12. If the readiness, the willingness is there, it, the amount, is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Do you hear that? It's a very gracious statement. It's not about what you don't have. It's about what you do have, what the Lord has entrusted to you, and how you respond accordingly. And that gets us to the third point, how we respond accordingly. 
proportionately and cheerfully in response to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our giving, brothers and sisters, our giving must flow not out of guilt, not out of pride, not out of a burdensome effort to, to, to try to win God's favor. Forget all that. Our giving must flow out of love for and gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, by his poverty, might become rich forever. And so you see, when you get out, give out of love for and gratitude to Jesus, you give because you want to and voluntarily. You give, as Paul writes in chapter 9, as you have decided in your own heart. It's your decision. It's your free, voluntary decision. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. No one's forcing you to give. God doesn't want a gift driven by guilt or by pride or by an effort to win His favor. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. You know, that's always quoted during stewardship season. God loves a cheerful giver. That's uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Now think about it. Why does God love a cheerful giver? God loves a cheerful giver because he loves to see his own grace and generosity reflected in the lives of his people. God loves a cheerful giver because he loves to see his own grace and generosity reflected in the lives of his people. There is no more cheerful giver than God himself. Jesus Christ suffered the agony of Gethsemane and the horror of Calvary cheerfully for you. Brothers and sisters, I've, I, throughout my 38 years of ministry, I have known people, many of whom of very meager means. And I knew it because they told me that they tithed. And not one of them ever went without. A dear saint from this congregation who's gone to glory said to me one day with a big, big, cheerful smile on his face, he said, you know, you just can't outgive God. Now, we don't preach give to God so he'll give back to you. That, that's not where this is coming from. But there is a truth in it when we approach that with a, a right heart. And that God does not forsake His own. He supplies seed to the sower and bread to the eater. 
And His promise in 9.8 is, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So the way to become a cheerful and proportionately generous giver is to keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, who cheerfully gave Himself for you and to you and bought you with His blood. To God be the glory. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we we thank You for the promises of Your Word which give us direction for our lives and help us to live in accordance with Your will. So, Lord, may the truth of Your Word strengthen us and direct us and give us life and peace and joy as we follow Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith. Today, reading from the Heidelberg Catechism in its section on the providence of God. I commend this to you. Keep your bulletin. Meditate on it uh, every day in these weeks to come. Christian, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the Almighty and ever-present power of God by which He upholds as with His hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leap and play, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from His fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for 